Hello, everyone. <laughs> so we are at week seven. We are at the end of the travelogue, finally, and arriving into Jerusalem. And of course, the arrival in Jerusalem is the start of Holy Week. We're a little ahead of schedule for the liturgical calendar, but we are on schedule for our class. Um, so we are going to meet this week, next week, and the week after. That's this week, the third, and then Palm Sunday. And then, of course, Easter, we're off, and then we'll meet, our last meeting will be the last uh, Sunday of April, when we'll talk about, we'll do some wrap-up stuff. So, I thought this morning was fun. Mr. Reichenbaugh, that guy, everybody has a Mr. Reichenbaugh in their life, I know. As a matter of fact, one, one man came through the line and told me about his, his experience with a former Marine Corps teacher. <laughs> it was very similar, <laughs> very similar to mine. They're all they're cut from similar cloths, apparently. So we're on 17, and uh, we're gonna, what we're going to do is hit the highlights of the stuff that's unique to Luke. So just to reset, we've been in, uh, on, the, on the road to Jerusalem since the end of the ninth chapter. So all these key things, Good Samaritan, Prodigal, um, the rich ruler, actually the rich ruler maybe today. Is that today? Maybe so. That was last week? Right. Yeah, rich ruler. That's, 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 rich ruler is today. Um, a couple of other things unique to Luke. Uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. All this happens on his uh, final journey to Jerusalem. And the things that we're highlighting that are unique to Luke are uh, the things that really highlight Luke's themes. And again, the point I made this morning in the sermon, sometimes it freaks people out to talk about what Matthew says versus what Luke says, how they nuance the story and all that, as though they're making it up whole cloth. I mean, they're not, right? They're receiving this tradition. And then what they're doing is picking and choosing what makes the most sense for the story they're trying to tell, which is not the same thing as saying they're telling a bias story because they're not. It's all gospel. But they definitely have different things that they're mostly concerned about. And so um, some of the things that in Luke that are particularly important is that he's talking to a Gentile audience. Uh, we've got this thing about folks on the margins. And um, another key theme is the prayer life of Jesus. I haven't talked about that so much, but it's runs throughout. Um, and then another thing I was going to put up here was oh, the Holy Spirit, rule of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to, um, well, let's just start with 17.1. We're doing fine on time because we only have three chapters to do. That's, that's an easy pace. We can handle that, right? Okay, so Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they, by whom they come, anybody who causes them. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle, that's another thing I need to write up here, repentance and forgiveness. Remember the the term repentance appears more in this book than any other 
book of the New Testament. So it's a key. Obviously, it's an important concept in the Christian tradition in general, but particularly so for Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, so these are the twelve, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you think the slave? Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, what you have done, um, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. That's not really Sunday school Jesus stuff. This doesn't come up in the lectionary either, by the way. Well, he's saying, uh, he's saying, don't take credit. Don't take credit for doing stuff you're supposed to do. Like, don't just follow the commandments. Don't brag on yourself when you do it. It's not really, it's not really warm and fuzzy, Jesus, right there. And now there's going to be this story of the lepers. And this, this story, this particular story, there's lepers all over the New Testament, all over the Gospels, but this particular telling is unique to Luke. So on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem, in case you're forgetting, we're on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. So this would be a really weird detour. I mean, he was... In Samaria, a way a long time ago, at the very beginning of the travelogue, and you know Galilee. I don't know if y'all are familiar with the geography. So Galilee's up here. Samaria would be here. The um, Jordan actually is probably more like here. This is the Judean wilderness. Here's Jericho. Here's Jerusalem. Jericho is where he's going to meet Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Very quickly, he went. He went through Samaria earlier, and that's where the Remember the disciples said, you must rain thunder down on them, God, sulfur and fire, because they weren't helping him. So, um, I don't know, Was he, did he go, whoa, way down here, and then loop back around? Probably not. So this is probably like a mixture of tradition, right? I mean, this, he's not, this is not, uh, it's like one of those things are not to scale. Objects in the mirror are larger than they appear. Like, this is not exactly a biography, but... Nonetheless, he was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, weren't not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. We expect that from this author, right? To highlight, um, I mean, the Samaritan is the good Samaritan. And the Samaritan leper is the good leper, or the grateful leper. So... Um, the other thing I want to point out here is that this story is, is a pretty close parallel with the story of the healing of Naaman, the Syrian, which is in 2 Kings 5. And if you remember, I don't expect you to have remembered, but when Jesus preaches his first sermon, and then first they love it, 
And then they're like, wait a minute, we know you. <laughs> and then they say, well, do something for us. And then he tells them two stories about how God had healed foreigners before Jews. Do you remember that? And he specifically, actually, let's just go. He specifically calls out the story of Naaman. It's in 427. This is right before they try to throw him off a cliff. There were, also, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and some of them were, uh, none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. He's not a Samaritan, but a Syrian and a Samaritan both are Gentiles. So what he says he's going to do in the fourth chapter in his, for, for, uh, in his first sermon, he has in fact done throughout his ministry, emphasized this uh, ministry with those on the margins, and then in that same story, he specifically cites a story from the Old Testament that is then echoed later in his ministry. It's a very tightly woven story. So that could be the reason that Luke puts him all the way back up in Syria, uh, Samaria again, or between Galilee and Samaria. Does that make sense? Okay, and then, oh jeez. Some more judgment stuff. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Y'all have heard that before, right? So there's, um, we've talked about this in different, I think in different studies, but the study of the end times is called eschatology. And there are two ways of thinking about eschatology. One is called apocalyptic eschatology. And this is like the, the train schedule for the end of time in Revelation. You know, the millennium and the premillennium and the tribulation and all that. The rapture. All, all that is apocalyptic uh, eschatology, which means a view that everything happens at the end. And then there's another equally important witness to the end times um, in the New Testament as realized eschatology. So, for instance, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, this is, this is eternal life, chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that you believe in me, basically. So that, we, so that the, um, the culmination of all things actually begins when we have faith in Christ. Like, so we don't, in apocalyptic eschatology, it's very much focused on, like, here's this life, and there's the grave, and then there's something awesome that happens here after we die or at the end of time, like a judgment day. And so apocalyptic eschatology says that we got to behave on this side of the grave so that we get something good after the grave. And what realized eschatology says is that actually when I put my faith in Jesus, if I got long hair and a beard here, then my, that's when my eternal life actually begins. And it definitely changes after I die. It looks different. But eternal life actually begins in that moment because our lives um, are, are qualitatively different at that point. So this idea that the kingdom of God is already among us is an aspect of realized eschatology. We don't have to wait for him to come back to make things right. We can begin and participate with God in making things right here. Then he said to the disciples, and when he says disciples, he's talking about crowds, not the apostles or what they're called in Luke, if it's just the 12. So he's talking to all of us or all of them. 
says, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go, do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end of the one one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. It's the third time he's predicted his passion. And the final time, I believe. I think that's right. It may come up again later. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Y'all remember that. She turns in pillar, pillar of salt. Those who try to make their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. And they asked him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <laughs> Jeez, come on, Jesus. <laughs> so in that one section, you've got both this kind of apocalyptic vision and this notion that the kingdom of God's already among us. And there's this, um, like so much of Christian theology is not either or. It's not like a black and white thing. So is uh, salvation about judgment or grace? Yes. Is God three or one? Yes. Is Jesus human or divine? Yes. Like we don't have, um, this, this is why when we get stuck in kind of binary thinking, we're, we're losing our roots because there's, uh, Christian theology has always held in tension um, multiple sets of concepts that seem like they wouldn't be able to go together, but, uh, that's okay. I mean, ambiguity and, um, uh, mystery, I think is probably a good word here is the, is the bread and juice of communion bread and juice, or is there some tan- or is there some spiritual presence of Jesus? Yes. Make sense. I, it's not going to surprise you, am much more comfortable in this aspect of eschatology. I believe in the second coming, but I just don't worry about it because we don't have to. We got our faith in the right guy. Okay, so then in this next section, um, we get to one of these themes. Now, the prayer life of Jesus has been emphasized over and over again. I haven't really pointed out every instance in, in the text where we've been reading them. But uh, the power of prayer in general is very much emphasized in this gospel. Again, prayer is an important concept in all Christian theology, but for this particular author, it comes up um, a lot. So both the, these first 14 verses, there's two different, uh, I mean, my Bible calls them parables. They're both unique to Luke. It only, only appears in this gospel. So then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. 
in that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In Paul, in Philippians, he talks about praying without ceasing. It's a similar kind of concept. Um, and the whole, the whole concept of prayer can be a little... I mean, when seen through our uh, inherently self-centered human eyes, it can be... It can be a problematic concept, right? If, if I'm praying for something, why don't I get it? So, prayer is not magic. Prayer doesn't, our, prayers are not always answered in our time. Prayers are not always answered in the way we want them to be. Because <laughs> we love to play. Like there's, in Genesis, we talked about this quite a bit. The, one, a couple of the great truths of Genesis is there is a God and it's not me. And we get confused about that. Even if we... That sounds absurd. We all know that we're not God. And yet, we sure do have opinions about what God should and should not be doing. Right? Um, and some, sometimes that's just uh, terrible theology. Like, you know, we're, we're convinced we know who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, all that. That's not great. But then there's the, I'm dying of cancer, and I'm too young to be dying of cancer. Why? How? How is this fair? How is this just? Those are very different conversations about what what prayer is and is not. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's a Jim Carrey movie. Bruce Almighty. Yeah, Bruce Almighty. And the punchline of that movie is God wants him to see the world as God sees the world and not as Bruce sees the world, including his girlfriend. And only when he has that realization that he's supposed to be trying to look through God's eyes and not trying to solve God's problem through his eyes, it turns out to be a mess. It's really, really good. Now, I had a um, – Jim Carrey's in it, so it's kind of kind of goofy. Morgan Freeman plays God, though, and that's awesome. Uh, and it's – you know, it's got some cussing in there, so I always am hesitant to – I never know everybody's sensibility, so just be aware of that. I had a clean version. Back in the old days, when I was a youth minister, this was 20 years ago, you could order a clean version of movies where they would, uh, like, bleep out all the cussing, which I... So, anyway, Bruce Almighty's terrific, and I almost quoted it today because of this whole idea of seeing through God's eyes instead of, like, uh, interacting with our enemies as we want God to interact with us, or as God does interact with us. Yeah, so David said, what kind of mess would the world be in if everybody got what they wanted? It'll be a mess. Yeah, we need to leave all that to God. Lorraine said, oh, and it's not a mess now. <laughs> be a different kind of mess. It'd be a different kind of mess. Okay. Uh, okay, next one. This is another parable that's uh, unique to Luke. This one is about another theme in Luke. Um, and it's related to this thing about uh, siding with the people on the margins, but it's the theme of reversal. So the arrogant will be humbled and the Humble will be humble will be lifted up or exalted. Similar thing going on in this parable. So he told them this parable. Uh, 
he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Ooh, now that would step on somebody's toes. Because there's a little part of each of us, I think. I think it's fair to say this. Oh, well, I'll speak for myself. I'm, I, I can, um, uh, let's see. How do I don't put this? Well, I'm pretty sure that I know what's right and wrong. And um, very rarely am I on the wrong side of that. <laughs> right? I mean, so I think this is a very common human trait is what I'm saying. No matter your, um, whether you're theologically liberal or conservative, or you're, whether you're politically liberal or conservative or somewhere in between on both of those, um, once we've got it all figured out, then we think everybody else needs to get it figured out our way. Right? I mean, that's the source of much consternation in society and in the church. So, here's what Jesus thinks about that. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And to any audience, who's the good guy in this scenario? In the first century? Yeah, the Pharisee. We tend to think of Pharisees negatively because we've read the Gospels. But in their day, Pharisees were very religious people who understood the law and took their faith seriously. Most of us would consider those people to be good. <laughs> so the Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> Thieves, rogues, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> hmm. Now... You know, tax collectors exploited people. Y'all know that, right? That's how they made their living. And the more they could exploit, the better they lived. So when we get to Zacchaeus, uh, Zacchaeus is not, he's only, we only love Zacchaeus because he's a wee little man. He's in a children's home. Like no one else would love Zacchaeus. Um, those on the margins included in that fourth chapter, remember, he talked about those who were oppressed. And what tax collectors did was financially oppress people. So the Pharisee, of course, says, thank God I'm not like that Yehu right there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. There it is right there. Um, this fits perfectly well with the text we read this morning in, in worship, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the, so the blessings and the woes at the beginning were about that. But also this, um, I mean, he, the Pharisee was not at the Sermon on the Plain. Because the, the Pharisee would have heard Jesus say this very famous thing that's also in Matthew that we've all heard. Why are you worried about the speck in your neighbor's eye when you got a log sticking out of your own? Like you are a self-righteous so-and-so. Why do you think you're better than everybody else? Don't do that. That's not good. That's not healthy. And this line here, um, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you guys ever read, um, it's a great book. I would, I would recommend this. This, is, this comes from my Russian slash Orthodox uh, studies. It's an anonymous book. 
The Way of the Pilgrim. Y'all read that? Highly recommend it. Especially like as a Lenten story. And if you like Russian literature in any way, that kind of Eastern literature, that's really, really good. So it's about um, this, this stock character in that kind of literature called the Holy Fool who uh, walks all over creation repeating the Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in Orthodox tradition, um, that's a breath prayer. It's an internal prayer. I say it multiple times every day as part of my routine. Because it's, it, it, uh, it ends up, like once you internalize that prayer, it helps pretty quickly center you. <laughs> That there is a God and it's not me. It also is um, a good reminder about this whole concept of repentance and forgiveness. It's really, really, and this and this book is uh, I've read it, I've read it a few times now, and it's just it's totally captivating, I think. But this is where, like, this is part of the origin of that prayer. So, the tax collector, who, if we're being generous, is trying to feed his family, <laughs> and knows that he's doing it in such a way. That's hurting his brother and sister. That's a conflict. That's a, that's a moral conflict. It's an ethical conflict. So we don't know much about this tax collector. We don't know uh, if he is truly exploiting people or if he's just making enough in that system, which was lawful, to get by. We don't know. But we know that he feels a sense of repentance about the way he's living his life. And we know that none other than Jesus himself looks at the tax collector and a Pharisee and, and he's saying, be like that to the unexpected one. <laughs> and it's the same thing as this, be like the Samaritan leper, be like the good Samaritan, be like the unexpected people who you think you're better than. That's a, that's a challenging message for people who think they've got it figured out, as it would have been for the Pharisees. So then, there's this famous story, we all know this one, people bringing, were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. Infants is different than children. Don't we, don't we normally picture this as like these first graders, these toddlers, these preschoolers gathered around him? My grandmother's buried in uh, um, Restland. She died young, like she died, she was, gosh, 42, I think, something like that. And my grandfather... Uh, they had purchased a lot before it was even built that had that picture. It's a statue of Jesus blessing the children. And she's right there in front of it. So it's always been a near and dear. I mean, she died when I was four. I've been going to that, that cemetery for a long time. <clears throat> but So infants is a little bit of a change in this version. So people were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Um, it's unusual for a child to think they're better than another child. Unusual. I mean, they're selfish, right, because they're kids, but... You don't have the same kind of hardened, <laughs> like tax collector Pharisee thing going on, and, he's, and that's why it's the story is right after that. So it's right after the, the 
the, the um, contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee, and it's right before this rich ruler. So a couple things about that version of the blessing of the little children. I already mentioned the infants. Um, he doesn't admonish the disciples. You notice that? Like some of the versions of that story, he's like, y'all need to leave the kids alone. He doesn't do that. Um, and then also, there's, he doesn't actually bless them. He doesn't actually lay hands on them like he does in, in Matthew. But we read all that into it because we've heard that story so many times. So then, uh, this story here is uh, common to the Gospels. It's just a couple of details have changed. So, uh, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We've heard this before. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he replied, I've kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There's still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is not only in Luke. This shows up in a couple places. What, what I wanted to contrast this with is what Zacchaeus says. So Zacchaeus, the bar for Zacchaeus is not to sell everything he has. We'll get there. So this is a pretty high bar here. Um, and he, so let's, let's finish the, the story here. So 26. So those who heard it said, then who can be saved? It's a logical question. So he replied, what's impossible for mortals is, is possible for God. What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. In Matthew's gospel, when Matthew's talking about this, what he says is, you can't serve both God and mammon. So that, and remember, I think we mentioned this last week, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's our attachment that's the root of all evil. And the point that Jesus is making here. Um, in, really is about verse 23. Uh, when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. So he, he goes to the Lord and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Lord says, you've got, everything's covered except this one thing, sell everything. And the choice that he makes is to forfeit eternal life because he's so attached to all of his stuff. The problem is not his stuff. The problem is how he feels about his stuff. That he is willing. He, he doesn't even engage. He doesn't even negotiate. Because he could say, well, there's nothing in the law that says I have to do that. What the law says is that I should tithe. That I should be generous. That I should care for those on the margins. The law doesn't say don't own stuff. That's not the, that's not the rules. Those aren't the rules. And then Jesus could have said, okay, well, fair enough. This is actually about the state of your heart. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't, you can't be in love with your wealth and in love with God. One of those things is going to keep you 
uh, in chains. That's the point. And, and we know that's the point because Zacchaeus, just a few verses later, is going to have a very different outcome. This is a, it's a Buddhist concept, but I actually think it's a pretty helpful one. Like, what, what, is our, what are our attachments? What are we in love with? What are we devoted to? God's got to be at the top of that list. And then for most of us, it's family. Um, you know, country is up there. Church is up there. But God's got to be first. Period. That's the, that's the beginning and the end of the story. And in this case, uh, the rich ruler would rather just go away sad than continue to engage with the one person who can give him the answer he's looking for. <laughs> but gave him the answer he didn't like. The question was about, so is that not then reflective of our faith? I think it absolutely is. In the, in the Sermon on the Plain, and this is something that Wesley talks about a lot, a good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad tree does not bear good fruit. If your faith is good, you will bear fruit. Your life will bear fruit. If your faith is good, then you won't just walk away from eternal life because you're sad because you got the Ferrari and you don't want to sell it. I mean, that's, that's unhealthy. And, I mean, most reasonable people would tell you that's unhealthy whether they're Christian or not. Right? Your therapist would tell you that's unhealthy whether or not they're Christian. So our first priority always, always has to be to God. And God doesn't ask for all of our stuff. That's not, a, that's not a gospel message. Okay, so verse 28. Then Peter said, look, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Right? Priority, keep your priorities straight. So then he took the 12. Okay, here's the last foretelling of the, of the passion. So then he took the twelve aside and said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. In Mark, this person is named Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus. That's a pretty famous story, but he's not named here. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he shouted even more, even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. There's no mud and all that. He doesn't need to. He's God, right? Um, we could probably spend a whole lot of time unpacking that. So this, this gospel author tells us he's the son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like there's a divinity there already. Mark doesn't have all that. And so in Mark's gospel, Jesus is much more like he's kind of a, he's, he's a healer in the more traditional sense in the first century. That's the whole thing with spitting in the mud, and making mud. And you remember the story. So he, the first time 
he wipes the mud off of it. He's, he, can't, he can see a little bit better, but he can't see totally. So Jesus has to do it again. That doesn't make any sense for this Jesus because Jesus is the son of God. We know that we've known that from the first chapter. Uh, so immediately he regained his sight, followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. So he's, he's at Jericho. He is almost to Jerusalem. And just in case we're, we forgot what he was all about, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free. Okay. So now... Zacchaeus. And there's a sycamore tree in Jericho. How many people have been to Jericho? There's, there's his tree, right? Zacchaeus' tree or the park or whatever. Did you guys stay very long in Jericho? It's Palestinian, so we kind of were in and out. We drove by the, the Zacchaeus Park or whatever, and we went to the, um, the uh, pottery place. We bought the, not pottery, it's like blown glass. Yeah, yeah we have one. That's on our mantle. <laughs> all right so if you go to jericho you can get sycamore nuts and you can get a sign that says shalom y'all and you can get this really pretty blown glass vase from wherever that is whatever part of the world is okay so he entered jericho and was passing through it a man was there named zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and he was rich so we know exactly where this is headed right woe to you who are rich Nowhere else in Greek literature does the phrase chief tax collector show up. Luke totally made that up. So what he's saying is, this is like the worst of the worst tax collectors. This is the, this is the chief bad guy. And, in case you're wondering, he's rich. And the only way he can be rich as a tax collector is by exploiting other people. So uh, we, we think we know how this is going to turn out. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not see because he was a wee little man. <laughs> and so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today. Right? We all know that one. Right? Y'all know that song. Okay. Um, so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who's a sinner. <laughs> It's funny that anyone would say that out loud, right? But uh, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. And to go find them. So the rich man... The cost is all. Zacchaeus, half. What's the, what's the difference? Exactly. Zacchaeus, what, of his own volition, said, look, I know that I've got some stuff to work on. And, and this is an example of this key concept in this gospel, repentance. I know that I'm on this path, and I shouldn't be on this path, so I'm going to turn back to you. Because God doesn't care about the money. Right? That's not the point. The point is, are we serving God or mammon? Again, that's Matthew, not Luke. But it's the same concept. It's really important to note that that comes like, what? 
six verses after the ritualer story. Same problem. Same problem. Um, that is wealth that is wealth by someone whose life is not self-examined. And so one person fixes that problem and one person doesn't. And that, and therein lies all the difference. Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah. I had one other note here. So all three synoptics have him, synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have him passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. So he was, on that map, he definitely came down like the more traveled route and not through Samaria, according to the Gospels. So as they were, so verse 11. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. (laughs) In case we've forgotten that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's getting close now. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He's already said the kingdom of God is already here. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten pounds, uh, ten more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of ten cities. Then the second came and said, Lord, uh, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came saying, Lord, here's your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you're a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. It's very poor social intelligence there. (laughs) That is not the way to manage up. (laughs) He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why, then, did you not put my money in the bank? At least then, when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds already. I'll tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Merry Christmas. (laughs) So a pound, just so you know, was 100 drachma. And a drachma was a day's wage. So you're talking about... A lot of money. Now, we know from this author that he's not talking about the poor and the rich here. right? He's talking about those who have spiritual gifts, spiritual wealth, that we then are to use for the glory of God. And that one is not unique to Luke. That one shows up in, in the other God, in the other synoptics as well. But that but the I read it because that's the last thing. Um, that's the last teaching on this travel log. So, um, this journey has started with this walk through Samaria that was not fruitful and that led to this desire for judgment by his disciples that he didn't let them do. And it ends with two stories back to back. One is the repentance and really essentially forgiveness of Zacchaeus. 
And then this notion about what we're supposed to do with our spiritual gifts. And it's almost as though he's saying, okay, now, we've been together a long time. I've tried to explain this to you many different ways. And now it's up to you to live into this discipleship that I'm entrusting to you. And after this this parable, um, then we get our Palm, uh, Palm Sunday story. So verse 28. After he had said this, he, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We've talked about how that's literally true. Jericho to Jerusalem is a climb. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent departed and found it as, the, as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. What's missing there? Yeah. It's really, it's really awkward to read the Luke story in his year on Palm Sunday because there, aren't, there are no palms. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Ooh, I've heard that somewhere before. Where? Where? It's not in there. I know. It's very tricky to read Luke's story when it's his year. Where have I heard that peace on earth thing? Yeah, so the angels at his birth, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. So these concepts, this heavenly acclamation of peace, uh, attends his birth, and it also is repeated by humans as he's entering <coughs> Jerusalem for the last time. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This lament over Jerusalem is unique to Luke. It's only here. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes... This is a kind of an echo of Jeremiah 6. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And then he entered the, the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. I just want to say this one more time. Ten chapters. Ten chapters. Actually, let's see. Ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, ten full chapters out of twenty-four have been on the road. And there's been as much kind of judgment 
and end time stuff in there, almost, as there are these beloved stories. And so, if all we had was Luke, we would feel this tension having been built, uh, culminating in this moment where he cleanses the temple. Uh, when you read Luke carefully, it's not really clear that it's only a week that he's there. The church calendar makes it a week. The other gospels uh, seem to indicate a week. But if you read like the beginning here, so it says, um, every day he was teaching in the temple. And then at, at the end of that little section, 2253, he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. I mean, day after day, that, that's a, that's a, that implies longer than Monday to Thursday. <laughs> but we, because the church calendar has been, I mean, we've always celebrated it the same way since the very beginning of the church and the other gospels seem to indicate one week. That's how we've, we read it this way here. Like we, we assume that day after day means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but that. If, we, if all we had was Luke, what I'm saying is if all we had was Luke, uh, we wouldn't necessarily draw that conclusion. Also, we wouldn't call it Palm Sunday. <laughs> also, we wouldn't sing Hosanna. <laughs> Cloak Sunday. It doesn't have the same ring. Sounds like he's a spy. <laughs> we'd all, yeah, we'd all wear capes on Palm Sunday and wave them around. Palms are more fun. <laughs> okay. Thoughts, questions? Yeah, yeah. So just for the folks who are going to listen to the recording. So the, their question was, like in the, um, well, in the, in the prodigal for sure, there's a clear indicator who's God in that story. The parables we read today, less so, I hope. <laughs> At least that parable of 10 pounds, I hope that's not God in there. Um, but, you know, I do think there is a... Um, a confession here, parables have never really been my wheelhouse because they, they are a little enigmatic, right? And I think they're designed to be that way. Like we're, he doesn't just come out and say what he's meaning, like he does in the Sermon on the Plain. That's really, just, even if I don't like it, hit me, hit me straight with it. I can parse it. Um, the parables are, are not always that way. I mean, when he says uh, your faith is like a mustard seed, you know, you plant a little mustard seed and it grows into a giant bush. Okay, I can see that. Um, but I'm not really a farmer. I'm not city agrarian stuff. Sometimes I have to read a commentary to really get it, what they're trying to say. And then they're the ones that are um, just kind of confusing. Yeah. And then a, a parable, of course, is different than a story. A story of the rich ruler is a, not, not a parable. It's a, something that happened on the way. Um, but not all of it is as straightforward as other stuff. I, and I do think that's why we love the, the Good Samaritan and, and the Prodigal, because it's very clear. Like that's, uh, we don't have to really parse that out or explain away some harsh behavior of God or whatever. Yeah. You guys hear that? So, I mean, Zacchaeus, he does, it's the double, it's the half my possessions. And then if I, if I have defrauded anybody, I'll give them back four times more. Right. Yeah. That's really honest. I appreciate that. So the question is, um, the whole, I mean, the whole concept of historical critical, um, the historical critical method, which is where it's like a, it's a relatively modern innovation in how to read the Bible, where we, you know, we, we know a lot more archaeologically than we used to, and we have, um, we have scrolls, papyri of varying ages where we can see the development of some thought, and there's clearly a fair amount of 
um, human, at least decision-making, that goes into the assembly of the texts. And then there's the places where, like in like the case you cited, so Luke, only Luke really gives us the detail about the virginity of Mary and the Holy Spirit and all that, right? Um, and so what, that can actually be challenging for faith if we, uh, if we assume, like if we read it in a certain way, then what is true and what is not. I'm using air quotes for everybody who's listening to this in the future. <laughs> um, and I, and I, this is a really, really important point. And I would say that when, um, when pastors go to seminary and we start learning about um, some of the details of the way these texts were put together and the way that we're trained to read kind of between the lines, what Matthew's trying to say, what Luke's trying to say, there's two approaches to that. You can uh, cover your ears and go, la, 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 and then like get through the tech, the course, and then just believe what you want to believe. And there are plenty of people who do that. Uh, or you can kind of, I hate this phrase is trite. It's overused now, but you can lean into it. And I, I think there's a really, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in this gospel is so important. But it's not just in this gospel that it's really important. So what we believe about the Bible, I'm talking about this Methodist party line, okay? And there are Methodists who are way more secularist than this, and Methodists who are way more um, closer to the literalist end on this. So that's what the caveat, but I'm giving you kind of the party line, center party line. Um, these texts are the inspired word of God, which means that they were not written by the hand of God. They were written by human beings in a particular historical context who uh, had their own concerns, their own biases, their own um, prejudices in some cases. And they're telling the story that they believe the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to tell. And we also believe that the Holy Spirit is with every one of us. That these texts are inspired in their writing and they're inspired in their reading. And so there's... Um, I mean, I, I think my own journey with this is... At first, I was a little freaked out. I, again, I was raised Catholic where somebody just told me what to think about the Bible. And I'm not trying to be ugly about it. That's just the way it was from my experience. Um, so... What do you mean that Matthew actually mistranslates a verse about a virgin that actually means maiden and not virgin like we think of virgin? And that ends up in Matthew 1. And so does he not really know that? Did he not really mean that? Is he like all these, like you go down that rabbit trail um, and you can come out on the other side disconcerted by it, or um, trust that the Holy Spirit's going to lead us where God wants us to be. And so at this point, as a, um, I'll tell you the stuff that I wrestle with the most. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked about love your enemies, 
turn the other cheek. That's really hard, but I believe that that's really what he meant. Um, and then Luke has all this stuff about blessed are you who are poor and, oh, you rich have already got yours, so if you're in trouble, well, what comes next? I, I, mean, I struggle with that because by world stand, global standards, I'm pretty wealthy. So, and I don't believe that. I don't believe that's the way it goes. But I can, I can understand where Luke's coming from, and I can understand why Luke's audience would benefit from that kind of message. And I can look at the Gospels in their totality and be convinced that what saves me is my faith in Christ. And if I have it better in this life than someone who's, uh, you know, um, growing up in a very poor neighborhood in Buenos Aires, I'm not going to get that held against me in the final analysis. But I understand why Luke thought it was important. We'll find out whether that's okay someday. <laughs> but um, there's, a, there's a phrase, I, I, I'm not super crazy about this phrase, but I would say those who are um, kind of on the more progressive end, the more, um, oh, I'll say progressive. I don't mean secularist, but I, I mean people who tend to read much of the Bible much more metaphorically than probably I do. There's this phrase that is intended to be comforting, naivete, informed naivete, that you, you, you deconstruct your theology, you deconstruct what somebody else told you about the Bible, you reassemble it in a way that makes sense to you, and the stuff that is beyond normal belief, you accept on faith and trust that it's going to be okay in the end. And so that's where I am. I mean, I think I'm pretty smart, uh, and I've read a lot, and I know that some of the stuff's incredible, and, um, and I'm okay with that. And when I have conversations, and I do <laughs> from time to time with, you know, atheists who think they're really smart, who think that faith is the silliest thing ever, I'm like, well, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. We'll find out. Um, I think God's going to make it okay in the end, even if you don't believe he exists. <laughs> Does that make sense? That's a really good question. And it's really, it really is at the core of what, what makes people, some people uncomfortable with the whole notion of reading the Bible. Um, yes, of course, as the most important faith document that we have, but also uh, in its historical context. Some people get uncomfortable with that because of these types of things, the types of questions. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and that's why when you read Matthew and Luke side by side, they seem so very different because Matthew is very much interested in how the Old Testament's being fulfilled. Luke is like, man, I mean, that's not his primary concern. It comes through. It's a great question. So um, the range on the writing for these Gospels is, uh, of course, they don't tell us, so it's hard to nail it down. But Mark is the late 60s. Most people would say. And then uh, Matthew and Luke are both probably in the 80s. Oh, you mean how old they were when they wrote it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know that. We don't, yeah, we have no idea. I think it's also conditioned by where they were. So Matthew was probably right. Probably He was probably Palestinian. Um, and Luke was... Probably not. And they probably were writing about the same time. It was probably 20 years or so after Mark. 
definitely after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so some of the details that show up in Matthew and Luke and not so much in Mark could be influenced by that. John's much later, late 90s, early, early uh, 100s. And so that could be as much as 20 years apart. So you have a generation of theological reflection. Then you have another generation of theological reflection. And John ends up being by far the most theologically sophisticated. No disrespect to the other three because they're very important. But in terms of like how the... I mean, here, by the time we get to John, the Holy Spirit had, had inspired the church to believe what we still believe, that he is absolutely fully human and fully divine. It, it took a few centuries to work out the philosophical underpinning of that uh, doctrine. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a far cry from 40 years earlier when Jesus just bursts on the scene in Mark at his baptism. Probably papyrus, yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably so. And, and it's probably the case, well, I would say it's almost certainly the case, they had, they had another source that we don't have anymore. That's where the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain comes from. So that's why I made the point today in the sermon, Jesus is the ultimate source. Right? He, he did say and do these things, but the way it comes down, I mean, this is half a century after the resurrection. I mean, that's a, more than a full lifetime for more, most people in that time. Um, so what survives is word of mouth, the oral, oral tradition, and then these written sources. Probably one for the passion, like the, the passion story. Um, Mark, for sure, for these two. And then um, this source, again, because all the Q and on stuff, I hate to say it, but yeah, Q. Quella. All right, I'm way over. Thanks for hanging in there. God be with you. Uh, say a little prayer at 6 o'clock. It's tip-off for the spring season for my youngest child. They won yesterday. Yesterday was opening day for his baseball team. He went three for three. Drove in a run, scored three runs. It's my boy. But who's counting? His old man, I got it all on my phone. I could probably give you some footage.